Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade. The tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trade Inc. is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here's your top five at five. Stocks hoping for a Tuesday turnaround after posting back-to-back losses. Futures are higher. Investors looking to key inflation data and earnings from two big-name retailers for new insight into the health of the consumer and outlook for the U.S. economy. Disgraced FDX founder Sam Bankman-Fried breaking his silence over his firm's finances and what led to its collapse. Plus, Berkshire betting big on one new name and its shares are popping in the pre-market. And later, former President Trump expected to announce his 2024 presidential bid after yet another one of his hand-picked candidates falls short. It is Tuesday, November 15th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Good morning. I'm Seema Modi in for Brian Sullivan. Let's kick things off with a look at how markets are trading right now. Your money, a look at where stocks are at. Futures indicating a higher open with a Dow Jones up triple digits, 150 points. NASDAQ is higher by 125 and the S&P 500 is up 30 points. Stocks facing a choppy session yesterday on some fresh Fed comments about the central bank's rate hikes going forward with all three major indices snapping their two-day winning streak. But again, we're higher right now. Take a look at what's happening in the bond market with yields once again lower. The 10-year yield now at 3.8 percent. So we've gone below 3.9 in the last three days. Also have to get a gut check on uh, the energy market where you're looking at WTI crude down about 1.3 percent. Brent crude is at 92 two barrels, so staying well above 90. And we want to continue to watch crypto and the continued fallout over the FTX's collapse. Bitcoin is uh, at 16,799, up about 3%. In fact, all of the major cryptocurrencies we track here are up around 3 to 5% right now. Among this morning's big money movers is Taiwan Semiconductor, regulatory filing showing Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway building a sizable new stake in the company, buying up 60 million shares worth about $4 billion. Shares popping in overnight Asia trade but are down sharply year to date. Stock up again about 8% here. Let's go worldwide now. Ari Bile Gumade in our London newsroom with a look at the overnight action in Asia and how set up is uh, how Europe is set up right now, Ari Bile. Yeah, good morning, Densima. So certainly a whole lot of green across the Asian market picture. You've pointed to some of the semiconductors, which have certainly moved in a higher fashion as well. Then the Hang Seng moving up more than 4% as well today. So a positive gain seen across uh, most of the Asian region. Very interesting, however, to note on the economic front out uh, in Asia. China did come out uh, with some sets of economic data. Then three data points which all missed uh, economist estimates. Then we saw retail sales falling by 0.5% in the month of October, 
compared to a year ago. Fixed asset investment for the first time uh, 10 months ago uh, of the year grew by, or rather for the first 10 months of the year, grew by 5.8% out on that front. That was just a touch below uh, um, estimations then. Industrial production also then growing by around 5% as well. So that clearly gives a sense of the Chinese economy, which isn't necessarily doing well with even JP Morgan coming out with uh, estimations on the growth projections for China for 2023, saying that will drop to 4% from the initial 4.5%. So you can tell there is a languishing in that Chinese economy. On to the European market picture, though. This has been pretty much flat across uh, the day's trading mark for the most part, with the FTSE 100 being the one, uh, one of the gainers, along with the CAC 40 and the SMI out in Switzerland. Negativity, though, with the DAX and the FTSE MIB out in Spain. Speaking of, however, a much more flat day, it might be prudent to put the champagne on ice. Moe Hennessy being drank out of supply, believe it or not, uh, Zasima. And the company is running out of stock. The chief executive of Moe Hennessy, that's Philippe Schwa, has, been, has even likened the situation to uh, the Roaring Twenties. That's what he has said internally. The Wines and Spirits Division of LVMH hasn't even been able to replenish supply for the new year. So that makes things for them immensely uh, difficult. It's all about that pent-up demand uh, following that initial slump, then particularly from the uh, pandemic. There are still a few questions around the sustainability of this uptick. Will this continue is the big question mark as consumers still flock and head a lot and rather heed a lot of the headwinds. Seema. It's a great point. The spirits industry, that's why so many people say it's recession-proof. We drink when it's during the good times and the bad. Uh, All right, Bailey, good to see you. Thank you. Back to what's happening here in the U.S. as investors gear up for two pieces of economic data. The latest reads of the Empire State Manufacturing Index and Producer Price Index both due in just a few hours, giving investors a fresh look for signs on whether pricing pressures may be easing. Remember after we got that CPI number last week? But our next guest says despite signs that inflation may be falling, from the Fed's perspective, nothing has changed yet. Kevin Simpson is the founder and chief investment officer of Capital Wealth Planning. And Kevin, always great to have you on. Uh, Why do you think one CPI print that shows that inflation is cooling is not enough for the Fed? Well, that's the thing. The Fed's looking for a meaningful decline in CPI. And until they see that, they can't pivot. They're going to continue to push that terminal rate up to the 5% target. But I think the market was right to celebrate last week's print because, you know, at a, at a cursory level, 7.7% inflation is still really, really high. But it's a far better print than the 9.1% that we saw in June, SEMA. And if you look under the hood a little bit, and that's what we're talking about this week, it's all about macro picture and inflationary pricing pressures. But if, if we look at used car sales and we look at housing prices, these have come down meaningfully. It means that this aggressive Fed tightening is working with those two areas. And housing operates on a big time lag with CPI. So strategists, economists, Fed watchers, everyone's hoping that the trend within CPI will continue as these housing pressures fall into uh, CPI December, January, and February. So we'll see what happens, but I think there's reasons to be um, a a little bit excited, maybe not excited, but but a little bit um, enthusiastic. Cautiously enthusiastic. And as you say, the Fed uh, wants to see this trend sort of play out. How many months, what type of confirmation does the Fed want to see in the CPI numbers? Is it two months of, of cooling inflation or more? 
Well, I think it's going to be a little bit longer than that for them to even consider a true pivot. But all of us who watch it can can read into every bit of data. And it's not just CPI. You mentioned PPI today, the Empire Manufacturing today. Any sign that prices are coming down in those two reports is going to be received very favorably. We also have consumer uh, retail earnings this week, so we can kind of see what the holiday season looks like. And, and any hints that they can give us about fourth quarter, first quarter for next year will be pretty powerful as well. So when we're thinking about positioning portfolios into the end of the year, I think using this rally as a, as a means of just right-sizing your positions, making sure that you're not overextended, too risky. We're not out of the woods by any mm -hmm. means, but I can make a strong case while we're in a bottoming process and why things can get better. And here's what's interesting. Your top pick from what I see here is Devon Energy. Energy is by far <clears> the best performing sector so far this year. Kevin, why do you think this is a name investors should still own right now? Yeah, well, it's easy to pick a winner, right, after you yeah. see a great year in 2022. But I think energy will continue to be the play. We're heading into winter. These companies have really right, looked at their balance sheet in terms of how they're spending, and they've put the shareholder front and center. The dividends that they're paying are, are fantastic. They're distributing variable dividends from their mm -hmm. free cash flow. They've, make, they've made acquisitions. They're committed to share buybacks. And I think energy for the foreseeable future continues to be a really important part of a portfolio. You just want to look at multiples. You want to make yeah. sure that your fundamentals make sense. And you, you got to keep an eye on risk. Stock up 61% this year. Kevin, thank you. Kevin Simpson. Thanks, Seema. Let's get a check on some of the morning's top stories. Silvana Hanau with those. Silvana, good morning. Hi, Seema. Good morning to you. Well, Credit Suisse announcing new steps in its bid to restructure its investment banking operations. The Swiss lender is selling a significant portion of its securitized products group and other financing businesses to Apollo Global Management. A price on the deal was not revealed. Credit Suisse says the deal, along with the sale of other assets to third-party investors, will reduce the value of assets under its securitized products group to roughly $20 billion from $75 billion. A third railroad union has voted to reject a tentative contract agreement, further raising the odds of a potential strike. The International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, which represents about 300 rail employees, rejected the deal, which was reached back in September. Last week, two other unions that also voted down the contract agreed to extend a potential strike deadline until at least December 4th. And the Department of Transportation fining Frontier Airlines more than $2 million over delayed customer refunds. The fine is part of a total $600 million in penalties against Frontier and five foreign airlines stemming from flight and refund issues in the early days of the pandemic. Complaints about airline refunds accounted for 87 percent of the more than 100,000 complaints filed with the DOT in 2020, Sima. I know I had issues with airline refunds, so... I think everyone did, yeah. right? And that's why this story uh, really speaks to a lot of people. Exactly. Savannah, thanks. We'll you see you it. soon. When we come back, Sam Bankman-Fried breaking his silence on the collapse of FTX and the crypto industry fallout. Getting set for a busy week, though, for retail as Walmart and more look to put the squeeze on price hiking suppliers. Plus, much more on the rebound in Chinese tech stocks continuing their climb higher. A very busy hour still ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade. 
bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. And there you go, a live shot of Chicago where it is snowing, the first snowfall here in Chicago. Hopefully it doesn't come here to New York, not too soon at least. Now to the latest headlines in the collapse of FTX. The crypto exchange says it's been in contact with the SEC, U.S. Attorney's Office, and dozens of federal, state, and international regulators over the past few days. Now, in a court filing late yesterday, the company says it's appointed five new independent directors at each of its main companies, including trade arm Alameda Research. FTX filing for bankruptcy on Friday after customers pulled $6 billion in just 72 hours and rival Binance abandoning a rescue deal. Now, in the filing, FTX says it could end up having more than 1 million creditors. Founder and former CEO Sam Bankman-Fried says he's expanded too fast and failed to notice signs of trouble. In an interview with The New York Times, he says, quote, had I been more concentrated on what I was doing, I would have been able to be more thorough. Now, when asked whether FTX uses customer funds to prop up Alameda, Bankman-Fried said Alameda had amassed a large margin position on FTX without offering more details. Let's talk about all of this with Sam Reynolds, reporter on the markets team at Coindesk. Uh, And Sam, I guess we got a response from Sam on, on running those funds, but we still need more clarity there. Well, clearly his statement really was half the story, right? So FTX and Alameda were part and parcel. The whole system was together. And FTX used customer funds to prop up their business after they took a big loss this year with the bear market. So, you know, regulators will clearly look at this in a bad way. And going forward, crypto trading will look a lot different in the U.S., What did you make of Mr. Zhao, that's the CEO of Binance's tweet overnight saying uh, to reduce the further cascading negative effects of FTX, Binance is forming an industry recovery fund. What do you think that will look like and could this help? Well, look, Binance and CZ are not the most popular players. Uh, FTX was for a while the good boy of crypto. Now it seems like FTX has failed and Binance will shine. So what we'll see right here is a fund with Binance and its partners to try and rebuild industry, to give liquidity, and to you know help this sector move forward, which is being crushed you know twice this year from the collapse of Luna and now FTX. But is he the one to step in and sort of be the the face of crypto now that Sam Bankman-Fried, of course, is uh, well? We'll see what happens to him. Well, it's crypto, so who knows, right? You know, before this all went down, you had Fortune and other magazines giving SBF these glowing profiles and Reuters using their entire capacity as investigators to look into Binance. You know, the allegations are out there that Binance is involved in money laundering for cartels in Iran. 
that might be true, might not be. We'll wait and see. But I guess that's the current face of crypto right now going forward. From the conversations you've had with people down in D.C., uh, what are the guardrails that policymakers are now looking at to ensure well, this doesn't rails- happen again? For sure. Yeah. So the guardrail is going to be enhanced going forward. Right. You know, the one million the one million user figure uh, shows us how popular crypto is as an asset class amongst retail traders. And so there are a million people out there who have put a lot into FTX and will now get pennies for their dollars. And so going forward, clearly that has to change. So I think that crypto will change after this, you know, for the good. Definitely. But we won't have this laissez-faire free-for-all, which led to this collapse. What have you made of the price of Bitcoin? Yes, it's down from the 20,000 level it was trading at in early November, but it's still at around 16,000, 17,000 held up. Well, there is conviction in the asset class, right? Despite, you know, this year being the worst year for crypto uh, with all these catastrophes, there is still a value there. And so I think that figure just shows the conviction people have and the strength of the asset class. I mean, yes, other cryptocurrencies will come and go, but Bitcoin shows strength and conviction. Okay. Sam, thank you. Sam Reynolds. <laughs> thank you. And coming up on Squawk Box, noted crypto skeptic and Berkshire Hathaway vice chair Charlie Munger dives into the collapse of FTX and his criticisms of Sam Bankman-Fried and those who worked with the exchange. Also on Squawk, a first on CNBC interview with the CEO of Crypto.com. That's at 710 a.m. Eastern. Still on deck on this show, Walmart and Home Depot set to kick off a busy week of retail earnings. We're going to dive into the sector and the headwinds that may hinder the critical holiday season. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Welcome back. It's another busy week of earnings with the state of the consumer top of mind for investors. Walmart and Home Depot out before the bell this morning. They topped the docket of several retailers unveiling third quarter results this week. We'll also get October retail sales numbers from the government tomorrow. This as Walmart and other retail giants look to put the squeeze on inflationary pressures. That was a story over the weekend. Uh, Wall Street Journal reporting that they're telling suppliers they will not pay higher prices for products anymore. Joining me now is Jerome Martis, Director of Consumer Research at Refinitiv and LSEG Company. And Jerome, always great to see you. I don't know about you, but I think Walmart is much more exciting than the CPI report and much more revealing, right, as to how the consumer is responding to inflationary pressures. Uh, Do you think Walmart will confirm what we learned in that CPI report last week, that inflation is cooling? Absolutely, Seema. We're keeping a close eye on Walmart and analysts polled by Refinitiv are optimistic that this company can continue to see an increase in store traffic and ticket growth. One indicator that we're looking at very closely today is the membership income. This grew about 25.6% the previous quarter and we want to see if Walmart is able to maintain this double digit growth level. This will be very telling to see if more middle-class consumers and upper-middle-class consumers continue to trade down as they continue to look for value. Still, 
Walmart is expected to benefit from grocery, strong grocery sales, strong e-commerce sales that are going to help offset the weakness of general merchandise. Analysts are also optimistic that Walmart mm. did do the work and, ha and has leaner inventories going to the holiday season. And when we look at the past two decades for Walmart, this is a company that continues to stand very strong, has, st has stood very strong during slow economic times and has outperformed the market. So as a result, analysts are bullish on this company. Interesting. And you talk about how the, the low-end consumer, right, that's been a concern, especially over the summer when it cut prices, it slashed inventory levels. But when I was reading through the second quarter report back in August, the company also pointing out that Sam's Club, right, that was the bright spot. Comps were up 10 percent in the second quarter. That marked the 10th consecutive quarter of double-digit comp growth. Perhaps that's where where it's seeing the most growth. Absolutely. So in general, what we saw this year was that the discounters that sold gasoline outperformed those that didn't. And mainly this is as gasoline prices were much higher earlier this year. Consumers were trying to gravitate towards ways of saving money at the pump. Still, those strong sales for the membership sales are translating into strong in-store sales, suggesting that consumers not only went there for to save money at the pump, but actually parked the car, went into the store and purchased items to save money. So consumers are all about value um, going into the holiday season. We're saying that promotional levels are in accordance with that. In a collaboration with StyleSage, we discovered that the amount of merchandise on sale has gone up, but the average discount percentage provided to the consumer is actually down compared to year-to-date levels. So this is telling us that retailers are trying to lure shoppers in by offering more merchandise on sale, but then the discount that they're offering them is lower than the year-to-date year average in order to, uh, to be, be very careful with gross margins going into the holiday season. Yeah, it's a tough one. What about Macy's? Will they have a similar story? Actually, when we look at our StarMind data, analysts pulled by Refinitiv are very optimistic on this company. They've been raising estimates and believe that this company is likely to beat earnings estimates this week. Okay, well, the stock is down about 20%. Uh, we'll see what Macy's delivers. That's on Wednesday as well as Lowe's. But today, Walmart and Home Depot. Jerome, thank you. Great to see you, Jerome Martis. Now let's get a check on this morning's other headlines. NBC's Philip Mena in New York with the latest. Hi, Philip. Hi, Seema. Good morning. A suspect is in custody after three University of Virginia student athletes were shot to death. UVA students and faculty held a vigil last night remembering the young lives lost. The suspect, Christopher Darnell Jones Jr., is charged with three counts of second-degree murder. He was arrested without incident about 75 miles away from campus. He is expected in court later today. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani will not face charges in his federal lobbying case. Federal prosecutors in Manhattan had been deciding whether Giuliani, one of Donald Trump's lawyers and a close advisor, violated lobbying laws when he campaigned to oust the then U.S. ambassador from Ukraine. Prosecutors had seized his electronic devices as part of the probe, but say they didn't uncover sufficient evidence to charge him with a crime. Right now to Monday Night Football and the Eagles looking to stay undefeated, but division rival Washington came to town with other ideas. That is Brian Robinson muscling his way into the end zone for the score as part of a 13-point second quarter for the Commanders. Washington dominated time of possession. They kept the Eagles offense on the sidelines for over two-thirds of the game undefeated no more. The Commanders hand Philly their first loss of the season, 32-21. That's it from here, Seema. I'll send it back to you. Fun. Philip, thank you. You got it.
still on deck. Beaten down Chinese tech names getting a big pop overnight. Alibaba's up 11%. The broader signals from Beijing providing fresh optimism for investors. We're going to explore that next. Stocks looking to mount a Tuesday turnaround. Futures are pointing higher after the major indices snap their two-day winning streak. Pulling back the curtain on some of the world's biggest money managers, we're digging into 13F filings to see which stocks the likes of Buffett, Tepper, Ackman and Loeb are buying. And Trump's special announcement. The former president expected to formally announce his 2024 bid for the White House as he faces another midterms defeat. And the GOP looks to move past him. It is Tuesday, November 15th through Walter Sheen Worldwide Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. I'm Seema Modi in for Brian Sullivan. Let's get right to how markets are shaping up ahead of the open on this Tuesday. Stocks did close lower on yesterday's trade, but futures are indicating a higher open with Dow up 154 points. S&P 500 is higher by 30 in pre-market trade and the Nasdaq is higher by 132. We are waiting on the producer price index, another gauge that investors use for inflation. In the bond market, we are looking at yields moving lower. The 10-year yield now sitting at 3.8%. And let's hit oil. Facing pressure as of late over rising COVID cases in China, uh, WTI crude is down about 1% at $84. But Brent crude holding steady above $90 a barrel at 92 Let's get to this morning's big money movers and a very busy night for some of the world's biggest money managers. Slavana Hanau with the 13Fs. Hi, Slavana. Seema, good morning. Busy it was. Regulatory filings pouring in overnight from the world's top investors and hedge funds, shedding light on their biggest positions at the end of the third quarter. Topping the list is Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, building a sizable new stake in Taiwan Semiconductor, buying up 60 million shares of the company worth about $4 billion. Shares are popping in overnight Asia trade, but are down sharply year to date. The new stake makes TMC Berkshire's 10th biggest holding at the end of September. Apple, Bank of America and Chevron remain the firm's largest. Other notable moves in Omaha, a new stake in lumber maker Louisiana Pacific and investment bank Jefferies, both higher in the pre-market. Now turning to David Tepper's Appaloosa Management, pulling back its exposure to stocks in a very big way. The firm exiting positions in Kohl's, Occidental Petroleum, Micron, Netflix and Disney. Tepper even trimmed some of its biggest holdings like Amazon and Alphabet. Appaloosa's largest position remains in Constellation Energy, followed by Alphabet, Amazon and Meta Platforms. Now, other notable moves in the third quarter, Bill Ackman's Pershing Square boosting its stake in Canadian Pacific Railway, now valued at roughly $1 billion. Dan Loeb's third point disclosing new positions in Bath and Body Works and TJX companies. Third Point now owns a roughly $265 million stake in Bath & Body, making the retailer its sixth largest holding at the end of September. And Chase Coleman's Tiger Global doubling down on tech, significantly boosting positions in Alphabet, Datadog, Workday and ServiceNow. New to the portfolio at Tiger, stakes in AppLovin, HubSpot, Pagaya Tech and Taiwan Semiconductor, SEMA. Moves there. Uh, Big moves. Savannah, thank you. You got it. 
Let's turn to Washington. Former President Trump widely expected to announce his 2024 presidential bid at an event in Mar-a-Lago this evening. This despite a number of his hand-picked candidates losing key races in last week's midterm elections. The latest Trump ally to fall? Arizona Republican candidate Carrie Lake. NBC News now projecting Democrat Katie Hobbs the winner. Lake has refused to say if she would accept the results of her race if Hobbs claimed victory. All of this as Republicans move even closer to securing a majority in the House of Representatives after a series of confirmed wins overnight in New York, Arizona and California. Joining me now is American Enterprise Institute's James Pethokoukis, also a CNBC contributor. Jimmy, good morning. Good morning. Uh, Republican donor Ken Griffin of Citadel overnight urging Trump not to run, saying he will back DeSantis. Uh, does Trump listen to some of his donors or do you think he still makes the announcement? that he is going to run for president in 2024. Yeah, I, I think he uh, is going gonna, gonna to make that announcement for sure. Um, and because uh, it's not just, you know, wealthy Republican donors have an influence. Uh, he has that core in the party. Um, you know, maybe it's not quite as big as what he thought, but it's still pretty sizable. That wants him to run and, you know, will crawl across glass uh, to vote for him. You know, but as far as these, sort of these, you know, these, these big donors like uh, Griffin, listen, um, they they sort of think what Mike Pence said uh, last night, that the Trump administration ended badly. And I don't think they want more of that uh, in 2020, 2024. So I don't think he is going to be the only wealthy Republican who says, uh, let's try something else. Trump was a bit of a unicorn. Ron DeSantis just won by three touchdowns. Sounds good. <laughs> How does... How does Trump take back the White House, though, uh, from your opinion? What could it mean for investors? Of course, DeSantis, at the same time, he's been taking a page from Trump's playbook, going after major companies, whether it's the cruise lines or Disney, very similar to what Trump did when he was in the White House. Yeah. I, mean, I think that's super interesting. I think it, it, it requires you to be a bit of a, a psychologist. Like when looking at someone like DeSantis, how much of that is him saying, like, this is where the party's at. This is what I need to do to become president. But listen, um, my, certainly my, my sense of the kinds of people, the kinds of wealthy Republican donors who might vote for Ron DeSantis, they just view him utterly differently than Trump. They, they think he is going to be far closer to sort of your, you know, classic, uh, you know, Republican, you know, like slow taxes, like smaller government. Uh, I think they think that fundamentally that's what they'll get, but, the, but they won't get the crazy. They're not going to get conspiracy theories. Um, you know, they're not going to get just totally wild things on Twitter and they're not going to get, you know, riots trying to overthrow the government. So they look at him, they think Republican, classic Republican, political instability, like we can trust him. <laughs> what, where does that leave former Vice President Mike Pence? Um, I, I, tell, I, I right. So I think Mike Pence loved to be president. It went through a lot, <laughs> suffered as vice president to someday become president. Um, that's why they run campaigns. Maybe become, people become more enthusiastic about it. Maybe he finds sort of uh, a, a core part of that Republican base that likes him. Um, but I mean, right. I mean, I see I see the same polls. I look at the same betting markets. Ron DeSantis looks like far and away the most likely Republican candidate if it's not Donald Trump. Oh, and by the way, I still think it's likely to be Donald Trump. In the meantime, we're still waiting for control of the House that's still in balance. But what do you make of the better than expected showing of Democrats this midterms? Yeah, uh, like candidates count. And I think uh, Republicans and they, they look at what what just happened, that that kind of, you know, MAGA candidate just did not do well. 
Um, and maybe the chief MAGA candidate did well in 2016, hasn't had a great record since then. And maybe that's just not what the, I mean, listen, uh, like President Trump, he's in a lot of TV. He knows people tend not to like reruns as much as the show the first time around. And maybe that's the American public. They just don't want to read one. Uh, we all like something new. Um, and maybe that's what people will be looking for in two years. Jimmy, stay right there. Outside the key candidate races, we're also getting uh, new insight from blue state voters when it comes to one very popular policy, at least among party leadership, and that is raising taxes on the rich. I want to bring in Robert Frank, who has that story for us. Robert, good morning. Good morning, Seema. Well, there were more than a dozen tax proposals on state ballots this midterm, but the big three were on taxing the wealthy. Massachusetts voters approving a new tax hike on high earners. It will be a 4% surtax on those making more than a million dollars a year. That brings their total rate to 9%. Marks the first change to that state's flat tax in nearly a century. That added revenue will go to education, roads, and bridges. Meanwhile, in California, Voters rejected higher taxes on those earning $2 million or more. The surtax would have raised the top rate to over 15 percent. The revenue would have been spent on supporting the transition to EVs. Governor Newsom and others opposed the plan, saying the state was already giving enough support to EVs and that it was a corporate welfare to Lyft and other fleet companies. Then in Colorado, they did a little bit of both, actually. It cut the flat tax. For all taxpayers, that was going from 4.5 to 4.4 percent, but it created an effective tax increase for upper earners by capping deductions for those who make more than $300,000 a year. Those funds also going to education. So, Seema, the bottom line, voters care how their dollars are spent as much as who is getting taxed and how much. Absolutely, especially going into a potential recession. Broadly speaking, Robert, how are the states doing financially? I mean, COVID, of course, was a big hit. It was a big hit, but now they're, they're flush with cash. They had those terrific stock markets and capital gains collections last year. They still have all that federal aid. The risk is they built all that money into con sort of recurring spending programs. So as we see the economy slow down and these markets are not going to deliver what they delivered last year in terms of capital gains taxes, we're really headed for some kind of reckoning next year for these states, which are going to see slower revenue. Okay, Robert, thank you. Good to see you this morning, Robert Frank. And then, Jimmy, I want to bring you into this discussion. What's your take on what Robert just reported? Clearly, we are seeing changes on taxes at the state level. Right. I, I think it's I, each of those cases, Robert said, is really sort of its own thing. You have you have different tax rates. You have different, um, you know, different purposes for the money. Uh, the political establishment in these states kind of took different different positions. I mean, California has a weird sort of lopsided tax system that probably depends too much on a small group of taxpayers. So I think it's tough to extrapolate more broadly. But I think, as you mentioned, listen, if we're taxes are funny. If when things are going great, people will say, well, listen, things are fine. Let's not let's not rock the boat. Let's not raise taxes. And then if you're going into a recession or there's a recession, you'll say, listen, times are tough. The last thing we can do at this point is raise taxes. Uh, I don't think the story, uh, indeed, if the economy uh, continues to slow, goes into a recession. I don't think the story is going to be lots of candidates saying, man, we need to radically raise taxes. Yeah, and that's why we're watching the House very closely to see what happens there. Uh, Jimmy, always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. James with the Kugis. Coming up, Chinese tech stocks surging in overseas trading today as officials increasingly try to pivot away from Beijing's zero COVID policies. 
We dive into whether China may be ripe for a rebound when Worldwide Exchange returns. Welcome back. Stocks in China are surging on the back of President Biden and China's Xi Jinping's meeting at the G20 summit yesterday, beating down tech names like Alibaba, JD.com, Billy Billy and more and others getting a boost overnight, of course, also in response to Beijing unveiling new measures to stimulate its property sector and also some signs that it may be loosening its COVID policy. But we're waiting confirmation on that. Meantime, take a look at the Hang Seng Tech ETF. It's also higher today by as much as 6%, adding to an already strong month. It's up 33%. All this as investors look for signs that less strained relations between our two countries are underway, as well as hope that easing restrictions for China's zero COVID policy will set the stage for a potential rebound in 2023. Let's talk about this and more with Ali Wine, senior analyst of Global Macro at the Eurasia Group. Ali, the read of Biden's meeting with President Xi seemed to be rather constructive, but I guess expectations were really low going into it. Good morning, Seema. It's great to be with you. And that's right. I think that there was a concern that we might see kind of a reprise of Anchorage and kind of the the dust up a quite uh, quite intense summit that took place last year. And I think that against the backdrop both of that meeting and also, as you said, against the backdrop of relatively low expectations, I think that this meeting is is a win uh, for the United States. Uh, I think it's important for a number of reasons. First, it's the first in-person meeting between President Biden and President Xi since Biden Uh, took office. Uh, So it's very important. President Biden stressing the importance of maintaining a direct personal line of communication open with President Xi, deputizing senior officials to address a range of issues, including health security, food security, uh, macroeconomic uh, stability. And then, of course, importantly, uh, Secretary Blinken will be making a follow-up visit to China. So again, against the backdrop of the summit that took place last year, against the backdrop of the low expectations that you mentioned, I think that the United States can chalk this summit up as a win. But still a lack of substance when it comes to some key sectors like semiconductors. After the U.S. uh, Commerce Department unveiled that export ban, we're still waiting to see how China could respond. And it didn't seem like that was a topic of discussion that came up when the two leaders met yesterday, Ali. What do you think happens there? You're exactly right, Seema. So I think that the the broader backdrop of the relationship is what's what's concerning. So I think that these types of exchanges, particularly when they take place in person, they're very important in offering a reprieve from a systemically deteriorating relationship. They're important in creating breathing room for both the United States and China to recalibrate the relationship. But the structural dynamics are challenging. So in the United States, there's concern that now it's not only that Xi Jinping has consolidated a norm-defying third helm a third term at the helm of China, there's a concern in the United States that as a result, that she is going to be more repressive at home, more coercive abroad in the next five years than he was in the previous five. In China, China looks at the Biden administration's new national security strategy. It looks at those new export controls that you mentioned, Seema, and it sees evidence that the United States on a bipartisan basis is looking to stymie China's further uh, development. And so those broader structural dynamics, that broader strategic suspicion, that's not going to go away because of this summit. Meantime, we're trying to figure out, is China relaxing its zero COVID policy? The messaging from Chinese officials suggests no, but then the actions they're perhaps taking strategically on the ground in certain cities perhaps suggest they are. And then, uh, meantime, Bank of America coming out with a note this morning, Ali, saying they're tactically constructive on Chinese stock markets on a sign that the COVID strategy in China is becoming better. What, is, what are your thoughts? 
So I think you're exactly right, Seaman. I think what we are likely to see is not not a wholesale abandonment of of zero COVID, but incremental uh, sort of an incremental piecemeal relaxation. Because there's, I think, a growing recognition that zero COVID is not only becoming something of a reputational albatross for China, but also it's becoming a drag on China's growth outlook. And the continuation of very stringent measures, it is going to become more of a drag. And if you look at China historically, there's a very strong connection between the legitimacy and the, the, the rule of the Chinese Communist Party and the maintenance of a certain baseline of Chinese economic growth. So obviously, China is trying to square a very difficult circle. So I think that what we're going to see is a gradual relaxation of zero COVID heading into 2023, certainly not a wholesale abandonment of the policy that China, at least early on in the pandemic, had been touting as evidence of its administrative competence. The data overnight, retail sales, industrial production, less positive. But when do you think uh, we'll see a rebound in China's economy? I think we're. I think that this year, the the expectations. I think that the Chinese leadership has already been setting the expectations that China is going to come nowhere near its original target of about 5.5 percent of growth. Um, I think that the rest of the year is going to be difficult dealing with dealing with zero COVID, dealing with export controls, dealing with a broader confluence of macroeconomic headwinds. So I would expect that we're not going to see some substantial rebound uh, in Chinese activity until uh, probably uh, second quarter of 2023. That's a conservative estimate. Well, it seems like investors are betting on it. Tencent up 10.5 percent this morning. Ali, always appreciate your expertise. I always learn a lot. Ali Wine of Eurasia. Thank you so much, Seema. Great to be with you. On deck, stocks looking to get their winning streak back on track. Oppenheimer's John Stolfis laying out just how much more room is left in this market heading into the new year. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. We will be right back. Welcome back. Let's get a look at the day on tap for investors. On the economic front, the producer price index and Empire State manufacturing figures are both due out at 8.30 a.m. Eastern. We'll also get quarterly results from Home Depot, Walmart, and Advanced Auto Parts. And at 9 a.m. Eastern, a pair of speeches from Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harker and Fed Governor Lisa Cook. As we gear up for the trading day ahead, let's get a check on futures as stocks are seeking a turnaround here on Tuesday. Stocks that closed lower on Monday. Dow Jones up 143 points in pre-market trade, and the Nasdaq is higher by 137. Your next guest says there's still room to run for markets, calling for the S&P 500 to climb back above 4,000 in the final weeks of this year. That's John Stolfis, Chief Investment Strategist and Managing Director at Oppenheimer Asset Management. John, when I saw that big rally on Thursday, I thought of you. I thought of your target. And uh, I'm curious why you think now. Is it the CPI report that gives you more confidence that stocks can run higher? I, I think so. And, and thanks for having me on the show, Seema. Great to be with you here on CNBC. I've got to say, you know, when you look at this, the market had been looking for some kind of a breakthrough on the CPI number and the CPI core number, and it got it. Now, it's going to have to see more of that going forward. We aren't, we aren't uh, betting on uh, uh, any kind of a pivot or even a pause from the Fed, uh, but we do think they'll raise into the first quarter of next year, but likely at a softer pace. So uh, we feel that uh, from here to the end of the year, our 4,000 target looks good and will, has even a possibility of being exceeded. 
And you think the market can hold on to gains even if we get another rate increase at the next Fed policy meeting? I see here Fed Vice Chair Lil Brainerd quoted saying yesterday that the central bank is likely to increase rates by 50 basis points at the December policy meeting. John. And, and I think I think the market liked that. I think it could deal with the 75 as well. It had already priced things in uh, for that. But I think the 50 will be well received. And I think, you know, as we move forward, let's see how the retail numbers look as we get deeper into retail results here. Uh, and that that could help the market. It could also hinder it somewhat. But uh, we think overall investors are saying they want to be back in cyclicals over defensives. Uh, and they they look to greater diversification in portfolios towards next year with the likelihood that we might skirt a recession. I don't know about you, but I find Walmart to be uh, much more revealing on CPI inflation trends than the actual government report that we get. It's much more forward looking, too. So what are you expecting from CEO Doug McMillan? And if he says that inflation is still rampant, it's still affecting their consumer. How do you think investors will respond? Well, we'd have to say this. Uh, first of all, I, I, I would refer you to our analysts on Walmart rather than to me because I manage money for the firm. So they, they don't want me talking specifically uh, on names. But what I can tell you is related to, to, to stocks within this, this sector. You, you've got to expect disappointment could easily not be interpreted as for the entire market or the entire sector, even though, you know, it may be a large component of it. Uh, we'll just have to see. We can't help but think that, you know, a lot of these firms have shown that they are able to manage through a very difficult periods or challenging periods. So let's see what happens. And I know you're overweight consumer discretionary and consumer staples. Want to get your take on what's happening uh, outside of the U.S. Chinese tech stocks surging this morning. Names like Alibaba up 11 percent. The economic data, John, from China was not good. Uh, what's your take? Is this a time to to get in on these stocks that have been beaten down so much this year on this idea that China could be slowing down or uh, uh, relaxing its code policies? Well, you know, it's, Stephen, I can't help but think that traders are, are most most likely responsible for this big jump that we're seeing in, in China stocks. Uh, the proof in the pudding will be how the relationship heals after these meetings that they had uh, between uh, President Biden and President Xi. Uh, the issues that, that remain are pretty deep. Uh, so we uh, we as uh, as, uh, as as participants in the markets uh, in emerging markets, we've tried to reduce our exposure to China now for the last year and a half, two years, uh, because of the fact that uh, we see a diversification of the global supply chain away from China. It doesn't mean it, it eliminates trade with China. It's just we don't expect it to keep growing. And related to the technology sector, it's 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 one of the diciest sectors within that that space uh, in that it can be very affected by politics, as we know uh, in recent history. John, want to get your take on the dollar um, and back to what's happening here in the U.S. Is the rally over if we only get a 50 basis point rate hike in December? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I've got to think related to, to, to the dollar. I think the dollar, if, if we only get 50 bips, we're probably going to see the dollar uh, gradually weaken, not on fundamental reasons, but just that it has been relatively overbid because of significant uncertainty related to inflation, uh, as well as global uh, uh, problems and, uh, that cause investors uh, and businesses to focus. Uh, they want dollars. So I think we've got a little bit of lesser appetite for the dollars. 
if we get a 50 bips move uh, uh, by the Fed in December. Uh, all that said, uh, mm-hmm. we think that's very healthy for the market, as you know. Yeah, dollar up 11 percent this year, but it did cool in the last uh, five days. John, great to see you. Thanks for joining us. That's John Stolfis of Oppenheimer. Futures are indicated higher, and that does it for us on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box will pick it up. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Too smart for your trading app? Tired of brokers made for beginners? Then it's time you get serious. It's time you join Tasty Trade, the tools and tech you need for a tough market, plus low and capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more, all in one place. If you trade anywhere else, you're missing out. Join the club, genius. Visit TastyTrade.com. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA, NFA, and SIPC.